Hey everyone, after a short break in episodes, we have another one for you that's a bit longer, so I'll keep this intro short. I'm excited for today's episode with Justin Holland, founder and CEO of HealthJoy, a full-stack telehealth provider that sells directly to employers. Thank you so much to Saurabh Bansali for the intro, and thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy. get into it with the first question. Uh, I'm particularly fascinated with your background uh, coming from MIT, then founding Open Install and FreeCost. Then lastly, HealthJoy, you're a relentless serial entrepreneur. Your last startup, FreeCost, was a success to say the least, acquired by Akuten Inc., if I'm pronouncing that correctly, in 2010, where you helped with uh, in internationalization, integration of product releases, uh, serial entrepreneurs like yourself have an advantage of learning from past failures uh, to prevent future ones. So what were some of your biggest takeaways at Free Cause and Open Install that helped you at HealthJoy? Yeah. So, you know, first, thanks for having me on the, on the show today. I appreciate it. Um, I think the probably the, you know, the, the major things that you learn when building companies is the amount of suffering, right? You can read the, always the romantic stories about <laughs> about it and then kind of going through it you realize how challenging and difficult and how you will uh consistently uh, meet failure and i think that that um seeing that you know obviously trying not to make the same mistakes twice whether that's within you know how you manage how you organize teams how you organize um you know engineering product market whatever whatever it is right you, you get a little bit of you can only read so much, you know, it's always it's funny, like whenever you're reading information or reading books, say in college, and then you go into the environment and you actually experience all the problems, you re you kind of go back and you realize, wow, it, like reading it is not nearly the same thing as, as putting your own hand on, into the fire. And so I think that, you know, there's a, a heavy element of that. I think from a theme perspective, um, making sure you have product market fit um, before scaling, right, is something that, that, that we definitely have taken away and brought into into future companies being um, you know distribution is the most important thing when your company is small like how are you actually going to distribute a product is there's you know there's so many different startups that have uh, you know stopped and failed with with maybe what they thought was great products but not really a market to go sell it in um, and then figure out even when they could sell it can we do we actually have a sustainable uh, positioning uh, for these products and so I think those those challenges and and I think another thing probably is how can you build less um, and test more without actually developing any code uh, I think is is something that we really you know took to heart with HealthJoy like you can you can trying to prototype and do things as cheap as possible I highly recommend everyone who wants to start a company to to think of Google Design Sprints as a great place to start because it it gets you in the mindset of how can I do this without technology. How can I do this in a way where I can just prototype it and get it, you know, f far enough so I can actually have a stronger conviction in the end product before I start? But um, yeah, those are things I guess that come to mind. Yeah, I've also heard the idea of just putting up a landing page, spending like a thousand bucks on Instagram ads, and then just seeing how many many people click on it uh, mm -hmm. as an idea. Like I, I love that sort of stuff. It's just like testing out the market before you actually put uh, real money and real effort into it. 
dollars. You don't even have to spend a thousand dollars to yeah. get a conviction, right? You can send it out to your friends. You can send it out to family. You probably have people have, you know, either um, LinkedIn. They can always, or you can download your email list from LinkedIn and send it out. I guess in colleges probably don't have as developed a network at, at times, but you know, there's, in, you have access to probably directories within school. Like, do as little without spending money as possible because everything that you do at the beginning is going to be wrong. And you've got to be okay with that, right? And that, and that's where like the kind of taming your ego is challenging because you come out of school and you've been kind of an individual contributor for yourself, pushing yourself, you know, through through school, and then you're like, wait a second, I got to depend upon this entire team. And then not on my team, but I have to depend upon other people making a decision uh, to, to go through this product where I think it might be the right product. So I say spend as little as my money as possible. Yeah. And I love that. I mean, the, the failure also definitely comes with, you know, exhaustion and, and for many serial entrepreneurs, uh, burnout. Um, and I think that's, that, that happens with a lot, but, but not with you. Um, what are some of the strategies that you have to like fight this exhaust exhaustion and to uh, fight this burnout? Yeah, it, it's tough. I definitely didn't have a good answer for it in my first company. My first company, you know, I did, you know, I don't know how many Red Bulls I drank between 2006 and 2009, but pretty sure that Costco ran out of, <laughs> of the, of the sugar-free Red Bulls that I bought uh, in that period. Probably not the healthiest point of my life. Um, and you have to work harder when you know less. That's just, the sad realities that when you're younger and you think you're going to go off and do it, you're just going to make way more mistakes than someone who's. And so I was very fortunate to, you know, we were basically, we got acquired after three years and, you know, you can at 22 to 25 was able to really, you know, keep the gasoline down or the, it's, you know, the accelerator down. Uh, and after that, I, I took a year off and I sailed, sailed for a year. So I went from, um, I sailed the Caribbean um, from Tampa to Barbados and I did it with my best friend uh, who had, who, who's now my business partner at Hellstory actually. Um, and I brought him off to work on our second company and we were lucky that we had a, a good idea in kind of a market and we were able to have, also have a quick acquisition and kind of coming into to, to Hellstory, you know, we, we kind of had the same pace at the beginning and then you realize you have to start building a team and you have to build an organization. And you as an entrepreneur, you're not going to, ultimately, it's not, your individual contribution is going to come to the point where you're not individually contributing anymore. And the longer as a, as a founder that you're individually contributing, the more exhausted and burned out you will get because you will always believe there's more to do and there's always going to be more to do. Yeah. And it's always a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. It's just finding those places where your effort can provide value. Um, now moving on to uh, more uh, telehealth related, uh, healthcare related questions. Um, you sell to HR departments uh, and employers, benefits consultants who usually advise those HR departments, professional employer organizations, and third party administrators. Uh, the direct to employer market is incredibly saturated right now with hundreds of options for HR departments. How do you, uh, HealthJoy, differentiate yourself from other companies? And has that sell changed over time? Yeah, and I think actually we're successful because of the amount of fragmentation in the market. Um, our, our solution brings it together. And so it's only, in some ways we're almost, uh, it's almost an accelerant 
the amount of fragmentation is, is kind of built into our into our positioning in our value proposition that as HR, it's overwhelming to make all these different decisions. And then also who cares about the decision process, but then you have to educate and get people engaged in all these programs once you actually buy them, right? And so our solution, think of it more of a platform where we're helping make all of those existing strategies more effective. And currently in our, in our core market, we're really the, we're, it's really a void. There's really not a lot of full stack kind of experience, a benefit experience platforms, especially where we're focused in the mid market. Um, and there's, you know, a handful of competitors we have when it comes to kind of uh, the enterprise side. So it's actually not like, yes, it, it seems overwhelming, but in some ways that that's exactly what our value proposition is to make it less overwhelming. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, one thing you mentioned was the difficulty for many HR departments to bring on their employees after they actually purchase provider. Uh, how do you facilitate that process for HR department? Yeah. And, and that's, there's no silver bullet here, right? Because ultimately it's a whole tribe to make this program work for an HR team. You need HR buy-in to believe in the product's going to help. Um, and then it's, you know, it's a lot of marketing. It's a lot of marketing to the individual employees, to their family members, um, continually throughout the year. Um, it's, you know, kind of ingraining the culture of HR to, to, for us to be kind of like, hey, we're, you know, we're kind of like, an, you know, an additional resource in their office that they, or they see us as an additional resource. So they're constantly bringing us up on, in every conversation. But it's a, um, it's a, it's not just a, you know, I wish it was just an email campaign and we'd be done. But it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to get all the alignment between, between leadership and the company we work with. Yeah. Have you, have you thought about um, incentive programs? I had this explained to me once, definitely a, a newer topic for me, but basically the uh, more employees that sign up for the product, the, the cheaper it is for HR. Um, have you thought about that and the pros and, and cons? Yeah, we've definitely done a lot of different incentives uh, depending upon the uh, incentives back specifically to the, to the member. We've made changes in the health plan uh, based upon utilization of the product. Um, so yeah, we definitely think it, it's funny. Uh, you know, it's the same incentives when there's, a, when it's a highly engaged workforce, highly engaged HR, those incentives are not nearly as important as when, when we don't have that same, when we don't have that same connection where we need to have more options. When you have a highly engaged HR and, and, and employee base, you really don't need the incentives to help drive. Yeah. It's really a case by case Correct. situation for you. Just looking at the company, how involved their HR department and, go forward from yep. there makes a lot of sense. So PEO, TPO and, and benefit consultants are, as I said, also part of your market. Um, how do you do these kinds of uh, connectors, if you will, compared to the HR departments to themselves? Um, what are some of the pros and cons of selling to these brokers? Yeah, we, we really see benefit consultants or brokers as somewhat of an extension of HR that you know the benefit consultant is obviously going to be the the trusted consultant of the benefits team or, or that company to make the healthcare plan decisions for the year so in many ways they're as important um as as hr is from a decision making perspective because ultimately the benefit consultants are the architects 
right? They're helping put together these plans, these programs, these strategies for cost payment or wherever it is. And so they're a vital piece of our ecosystem um, that, that we have high alignment uh, with, the, with the benefit consultants and brokers. Um, and in the same way as the TPAs, the, the TPAs are um, the administrators of, the, of these self-funded plans. Um, so there's the tighter relationships with the ad, the TPAs, the better experience it is for, for members. So I would say all of those, all of those different entities are, are very, very important um, as they also have, they're also massively aligned to make sure the programs work, right? The, the benefit consultant puts together, spends a huge amount of time and effort putting together these health plans. They want to make sure they work and they want to make sure the strategies are actually um, creating the outcomes. So we help them. We are also helping enable them to be more successful. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, do you think that having to go from benefits consultants to HR departments affects that alignment of incentives at all? Uh, have you found, do you need to incorporate more incentive programs when that's the case? Um, or do you feel just as connected to the HR department? You feel just as connected. I mean, typically we're brought in, you know, we're being introduced by our benefit consultant partners to their, to their customers. And at that point we're, you know, we're heavily involved in the sales process. So if anything, we see, uh, we see the benefit consultants as, as champions of health joy, right. Helping, helping push our message. Yeah. Uh, and, Love that. and it's, um, they're, they're, they're a vital piece of our, of our distribution. Yeah. So, uh, recently, obviously COVID growth has, um, been rampant for telehealth companies, uh, which has led to numerous opportunities and, uh, challenges. What kind of growth, uh, have you seen at health Troy? From a growth perspective, it's, there is probably a double, you know, I'm not going to say it's a double edged sword from a positive perspective, but the. COVID has been very challenging for a lot of businesses across the country, right? So obviously our, our business is dependent upon other businesses. So in that perspective, it's been challenging for, for a lot of our customers, right? As time has gone on, whether that's furloughs, layoffs, um, et cetera. And so we, 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 we've seen all those. Um, I think from a macro perspective, um, the concept of telehealth being the, the um, front door, not the back door or side door for healthcare, uh, has been really cemented in the minds of many people, right? The idea of talking to your your therapist through Zoom or your primary care physician through Zoom is now actually the norm and 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 not the not the exception. And that's you know probably accelerated um, telehealth adoption by I don't know five years. Why went through a five year uh, growth factor in six months uh, from a perspective of adoption. And if you know, when we're, when companies are looking at one one this year, most of them are going to be remote, and the kind of the idea that you're going to be in that uh, enrollment meeting with like a stack of paperwork for your for your new benefits for the year, that's not going to be an option anymore. So they kind of understand that we, they really need a digital approach to to how they um, you know deliver benefits and educate benefits on an annual basis, and so that obviously has had a very you know it's we we we're, we're, we've been very fortunate that we have a very good solution for that, for that really, really hard problem. Um, so, you know, so far we're, I, I'd say, you know, we're, we're well positioned to, to help our companies um, do as best they can in this, in these challenging times. Yeah. So it seems that a lot of companies take the go to market strategy of, you know, I'm going to sell to employers. Um, that seems to be the most effective for a lot of people. Also the most common 
from what I've gathered, the end goal for a lot of uh, companies like HealthJoy, um, you know, telehealth providers is to sell to insurance companies. Is that the case for HealthJoy? And why do you think that employers is the best place to start? So, yeah, we're, we're definitely in the, you know, our focus is commercial. So we're focused on the employer side. Um, there's a lot of companies there. There's not a lot. There's, you know, there's, there's several companies in our space that are focused on the payer. So selling to insurance companies. Um, we started off, our first three years in the business was direct to consumer. So you bought HealthJoy and you had a like, just like Netflix, right? You had a 15, 20 bucks per month access to our software. Um, we spent the first three years and was focused on Obamacare and realized how little I knew about healthcare, right? When we made that decision, <laughs> uh, completely, you know, uh, failed basically. And then especially once 2016 came, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the ACA, the Obamacare um, had a lot of challenges, right? From a funding perspective, but just overall um, subscription. You know, Sorry, the, if, if I could interrupt. Um, yeah. Could you just explain a little bit, like you were direct consumer, but you focus on Obamacare. Yeah. How does, how does that work? Yeah. So basically you would buy an Obamacare plan. So you're an individual, right? Say you went online to look for healthcare. You type in like, Hey, I need healthcare. You ended up buying healthcare from say like a, like a, an exchange. Right. And then you'd also get upsold health joy at the same time to buying that plan. This was 2014 to 2016. And so we had a lot of experience obviously working directly with consumers because they had to buy the product. Yeah. And so we sat on top of that Obamacare plan, but there's no, there's no company, right? You're just an individual who um, may be unemployed, may not be just maybe, um, you know, buying the plan separately from your company, your company, because your company doesn't offer health benefits. Yeah. So um, is the consumer then direct, like purchasing directly through you or are you then selling to Obamacare who sells to the consumer? Yeah, no, yeah, we, it was direct consumer. Are so they? we just have agents that were selling their Obamacare plans also were selling our product. Okay. Okay. It was gotcha. an agent assisted sale, but we were ultimately the, the end user was our customer. Yeah. They, they, they were the one buying. Okay. And at that point we kind of had, we were screwed, right? We're like, Oh crap, we have to pivot. And it was, well, we had, basically we could go to Medicare, we could go to sell to insurance companies or we could go direct or go to employer. Those are really the only three options we had. And, you know, from our perspective, selling to a payer insurance company, probably long sales cycle, probably, you know, we're going to have to be able to survive on an 18 to 20 more, 24 month sales cycle. It's going to be really challenging. Um, and you're going to death, we call it death by pilots. You'll be on these pilots and you'll just die by them because you'll get pilots, all this work you'll have to do that's custom. And then you're going to get got, who knows if you're actually going to get a real product. So we didn't like that idea. Um, Selling to Medicare, obviously, we felt kind of the same way, like going to sell a digital product to um, 65 plus seemed challenging, right? Now, I actually have a different opinion about that, um, just with the way uh, digital is really a lot of saturation um, in our in our senior population. But so, you know, when you look at it, yeah, those are the, those were options. But when you look at a direct, at an employer, there's thousands and thousands of employers. That means thousands and thousands of times that you can try and fail, right, to go sell something. 
and refine your pitch and figure it out. Yeah. So I think it naturally is a was it is a lower risk, and then also happened to be we were very fortunate that we didn't understand the full dynamics that of all this all these different as you had mentioned earlier the saturation of different products and services that even made our product like ours even more important. So you know rather lucky than smart. We got very very fortunate that we just kind of fell into that and realized wait we have a really good solution for this massive fragmentation that exists in the market. Yeah. So I guess I'm not saying like there is anything easier. The fact is there's just more companies that you can go sell and fail. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot. I've never thought of that. That makes a lot of sense. And then like the, the insurance companies are sort of more risky because they're, they're less of them and the, the sell cycles are longer. So it's like, you can only make money at, at, you know, X amount of months per year. So that just makes 30, it 36 crazy. months. Probably you're probably yeah, not going to have, you're probably not going to have your acquisition payback for 36 months. So in SAS, we kind of have like four metrics that you look at and CAC payback is like a very, very important metric yeah. customer acquisition payback. If you're, if you're at 36 months, you have a very, very, very expensive sales cycle, right? Yeah. So you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars per Yeah. Sale. Do you find like competition that, comes from these insurance companies sort of selling to employers with similar digital products or is the competition that you see mostly from other you know uh direct to employer people yeah so uh, carriers you know i would say that insurance companies have have always had a challenge of being a highly trusted entity to the to the end user that they ultimately are, you know, servicing. So, you know, it's no secret that the NPS scores and trust scores for insurance carriers is not very impressive. Yeah. Very, very low, typically. And it's difficult because the, and it's difficult because of the dynamics that exists. A lot of different reasons. I'm not going to go into them here about, you know, the opacity in the system. And, and there's a lot of distrust between between the providers and, and, and the carriers and, and there's a, uh, trying to keep a lot of the data secret. And so what's happened is it's been very difficult for them to have a highly engaged end user base, right? And so that has made it so that those those products, which, you know, you would they would hope that they would get higher utilization. And we, wanna, and we do want to help and assist them to get higher utilization of those solutions that they have. So really it's, it's mostly other, you know, other competitors um, there are there are also point you know other solutions that are selling into employers yeah. are, are competition. We don't really see the carriers as a competition. Yeah, no, it makes sense. There's definitely a lot of misaligned incentives um, hidden in the uh, messed up healthcare system that is the United States. On a, on a separate topic, but still related to like your relationship to other companies in the space. Um, how do you look at data collection and like safe data sharing? using data to either uh, further yourselves or uh, help the telehealth community as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, you know, ultimately the whole reason we have the situation is because of the lack of data sharing in, in the industry. I think that's the endemic kind of core problem that, that, that is, uh, that's, that's, has caused most of these issues. So we feel very strongly around portability. Right, that people should have access and be able to, to be portable uh, with their with their EHR or uh, health records and, and medical record data. Um, that HIPAA, you know, but we need to do that with 
a strong sense of security and compliance, right? Because if anything, it's there's more and more bad actors every every single day that are existing out here trying to trying to get personal data, and we have to stay completely we have to stay really really vigilant, uh, which you know ends up having to be a lot of work uh, to stay vigilant um, from a security perspective. So much more than my previous companies that didn't have uh, this sensitive amount of data, um, and so. I think, you know, the, the key to this, the key to, to, to solving the problems is more transparency. And, and actually, oddly enough, Congress and um, has been putting through some really great things recently. Um, and some of that stuff's going live Jan 1 uh, around, uh, around hospital costs and, and transparency of costs. We ultimately need people to be consumers. The only way to be consumers is to have the data, right? You're not going to go into a grocery store. And you go to a grocery store, there's no prices on anything. Like, what are you going to do? Well, if you don't have to pay for anything, you're just going to buy everything you can, right? And so that's basically what it's like going to the hospital right now. You have no idea what anything costs. You're just yeah. saying yes. So doctor said, you need this test? Yes. Sure, right? But if they don't know how much it costs and you don't know how much it costs, you're never going to be able to be a consumer until those two things are, are known. I feel like that's almost should be a fundamental right. Yeah. Uh, that's wonderful. So moving on to the advice related questions directed to our students, most of our audience uh, is undergraduate. Uh, this is certainly uh, related to COVID, um, a challenging time to enter the job market. What advice do you have for students? Uh, what would you say to your college self? Say to my college self, I'd probably say, look, Justin, it's going to be really hard. <laughs> this is, this is going to be like, you know, 2008, right? The aftermath of that from a, from a job market position, I think, um, for non-technical roles, you know, the, the, the reality is the engineering positions are still getting, um, you know, scooped up everywhere. It's actually less important about where you are these days. So, you know, I think that that, if anything, has, has been actually somewhat of leveling the playing field for a lot of people, because you don't need to be in Silicon Valley now to get access to a lot of the positions across, across those opportunities there. Um, that the you know which which helps quite a bit like you don't have to go and, and and move somewhere and start taking a huge amount of expense to try to get a job you can do the job you can do you know you can do that from anywhere now so i think that that's that's somewhat of an advantage i think you know obviously i'm, I'm going to be always uh partial to startups and technical companies i think that they're um because of the speed higher likelihood they're going to be very meritocracy uh, based cultures where the best will rise and that gives great opportunities to work to just get in anywhere within those within those companies because likely what you're doing now is different than what you what you could be doing in 12 months um right initiative but you know i, I think i highly encourage looking in, in in you know specific industries you know with either within within tech healthcare um, you know, obviously tech is, is a, it's a pretty broad, <laughs> pretty broad. You could, there's a lot of different options and different, uh, verticals in that, um, be wary of, 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 of trendy things, try to focus, you know, from, from a, from a long-term value perspective. And I think looking at what the stock market has done and, and has done over the last 12 months is a pretty good indication of what's going to do well, probably for the next 12 months from a, from a job perspective perspective. So which has been healthcare, obviously, you know, tech, AI, um, finance, things like that. So, 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, no easy answer there. Yeah, no, there, there never is. Um, it, when you look at new hires, um, still on this trend of, uh, advice for students, uh, what are some key attributes and, and skills that you look for? And, uh, you think that companies more generally look for, um, when it comes to the, uh, more soft skill side of things? Yeah, I think what I was thinking about, I was th- you know, what every position in a company has a set of competencies. So I'm just going to give you, so like when we're, when we have a job description, we have a set of outcomes we're looking for, for a job, right? We're sitting down saying, hey, if we have this person in 12 months, what's, what the, what's the world going to look like when this position is filled? In order to get to that 12 months, we distill that into a set of competencies. The competencies are always different based upon the job, right? But what doesn't change is how we assess somebody by the core values of our business. So if someone is coming in and has a massive ego, doesn't play well with the team, doesn't matter if we think they have all the competencies in the world, if they have the grit, the initiative, all this other stuff, right? If they're not hitting our core values, they're probably not going to fit. They're not going to fit for us, right? And I think that goes the same for a lot of companies is that if a big portion of the preparation going into job interviews would be looking at the core values because you will be assessed. Any company that you guys want to get hired for or girls want to get hired for, they're going to assess you by their core values. They may not tell you that during the interview process, but they're going to have every single one of the interviewees is going to tell them, hey, did this person come in with a big ego? Did this person show have empathy for, for, for something, for someone? Every single time at a good company, they will do that. And I'm always surprised when they, people come in and they don't expect us to actually hire by them. Um, and so a good company will hire by their values and a good company will look at the values and then understand maybe those, some of those companies are, are some things that can be learned over time. I love that. I think that's the first time uh, anyone's mentioned that in any of these interviews. Moving on to more fun question. Do you have any favorite books, podcasts um, that have been big influences on your life uh, and on your work? Yeah, it's funny. I, uh, the Every book has its time. And the problem is when you read the book, it may not be the right time for that book. <laughs> right? That's what I've always found. Is like I think book back and like I took a lot of classes at Sloan when I was at MIT and I'm like read all these books. I didn't give it, I didn't care. I was an undergrad, just you know, just not caring at all about my classwork, right? Not saying you should do that. You should definitely care about your classwork. But I look back in those some of these like fundamental books, like I think of how to win friends and influence people. That book, I could read that book ten times over the over the course of my of my next, you know, hopefully fifty years of, of of doing what I'm doing. How to win friends and influence people is always something you're gonna have to do, because working in a team, you're gonna figure out how to influence people to be successful. Because you're because being in a company is a team sport. You gotta figure that out. Seven habits of highly effective people. Like I did not care about it when I read it when I was 22. I sadly. Now I read it again. I'm like, oh my god, this is like transformational from a perspective of being purpose driven, making sure you start with the end in mind, because it's so easy to live unconsciously, right? You get out of college, you've been living unconsciously because you've just been signing up for classes for four years, doing whatever you're doing, and then you get out and you're like, okay, I gotta, I have a construct that I'm living by. Um, so trying to be more conscious about what you are actually planning, wanting to accomplish, and lining up your life earlier to that. I can't tell you how impactful it is. Hard to do when you're early early 20s without having the experience. And then a book that I've been reading very recently is 15 Conscious Commitments of Leadership, which 
I'd say is very similar to the seven habits of highly effective people, but understanding the concept of ultimate responsibility as, as a leader. Um, I think it also applies to a lot of personal relationships you have in life, um, even with, with some point to be married or, you know, your, your friends, like taking responsibility in your life is, um, is something that, you know, I would encourage everyone to do start as, start as early as possible because life will do things to you, but, or you can have be part of that and have it, um, through yourself and, and by your own capabilities. So, uh, those are the things that come to mind as, as being very impactful. Thank you, Justin. That's uh, more advice than just books. We spoke a little bit earlier about how you didn't deal with stress very well early on in your career, and you've spoken about these books that have helped you. What are some of the specific lessons and practices that you uh, do now that help you stay mentally fit given the high demands of your job and just the stress involved with it? Yeah, I think it's very easy when you're younger to think that busyness equates um, like effectiveness, right? The busier I am, the more effective I am, right? And so it's it's very easy to get caught up in this concept that I need to be constantly filling my time and, 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 and constantly effective. And you will not be effective. By the act of being busy, I, I hate when people say, hey, I'm too busy for that. You're too busy for that. You probably haven't made enough time for yourself to think. Um, I I use a I I make sure I have about 20 hours a week that I have focused on because I have to think. I have to think for this job, right? And most positions require a lot of thinking. If you don't have that headspace and mind space, and you constantly are in the weeds, always doing tactical things, um, you will be get exhausted. Um, so. I, I try to make sure that I have a lot of time to think um, and reflect. And when I don't do that, I play video games. <laughs> that's, how I, that's, how I, that's how I deal. Uh, that's how I deal with the with, with the stress. What do you do when you're when you're just thinking? Like, do you literally just sit down on your your porch or your your couch and think? You read a book. Like, what is the process of thinking for you? Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a fair that's a fair question. I think, you know, I, I find that my, you know, I usually listen to music, something like, you know, whatever the Spotify uh, focus playlist or brain food, you know, and, and usually I write, usually write down my thoughts, write down the notes, right? Long form, I think, is the best way to organize ideas. Um, and, you know, when you're writing, you're always, you're, you're kind of getting the same benefit of also the, the conscious you know, repetition in your mind of seeing the same words, right? I think writing is probably the most effective way um, that I've found to actually structure what I'm trying to accomplish. Um, that's that's probably my main, you know, that and sometimes I'll just be walking around and listen to an audio, right? And just, uh, you know, just be outside. So not much of a, I don't really work out as much as I should, but if I did work out a lot, that's probably also another time I would be thinking quite often. Well, that is all the time that we have for today. Thank you so much, Justin, for coming on the podcast and for giving your incredible insight. Check us out at The Takeoff on Twitter and on Substack at thetakeoff.substack.com for more. Thank you all for listening.